0: Church, um, you know, has things that are important. As I said in the first message, this is not an exhaustive list. This is, I mean, if I preached on everything we believed, I could preach all year, all year on different, different aspects. I wanted to highlight the, the seven things that I thought were vital to the life of this church who we are, what we believe, the, the stuff, as it says, the ties that bind us. So we've talked about, we believe in the Bible. We've talked about last, last week the idea of the Trinity, that wholeness, this morning I want to talk on discipleship. This morning I want to speak on discipleship. As part of that, and I didn't mention it in the announcements. Inside your bulletin, you'll find a sign-up sheet for your life for our life groups. Life groups are beginning next week. I hope that you will pray about it. I hope you have been praying about it. I hope you'll sign up, go out to the lobby. You can talk to Tony. She'll give you more details on the days of the week, what groups are meeting when, what curriculum they're teaching, and I hope you will find a life group and get involved in that. Discipleship is an important component to your walk, and that's what I want to talk about this morning. But again, I want to look at it slightly differently. I've been praying about this a lot this week in particular last night and this morning many people say that their greatest fear is public speaking that's not what you're afraid of when you're speaking is the actual speaking part the embarrassment of public speaking the the, the fear of public speaking is the embarrassment aspect what people are afraid of is that they'll embarrass themselves All that to say, fortunately for you, for those visitors, I'm not afraid of public speaking. I wanna put your mind at ease. You're like, my God, we're visiting a church where the pastor's afraid to preach. You don't need to worry about that. What I'm saying is that the thing that people are afraid of is not standing up here with a microphone and talking. It is saying something that will embarrass yourself later on. One of the things that can be embarrassing is doing things that are very, very different. But recently I've been praying about, I've had other people speak into my life, about really trying to hear what God is saying to me and to follow that as closely and as specifically as I can. So I am going to speak on the idea of discipleship this morning. But here's what I'm going to do, and I'm going to lay the groundwork now so I don't have to come back to it later. I'm going to tell you three stories. I'm going to three, I'm going to read three passages of Scripture. And then we're going to spend some time in prayer. And that's what we're going to do this morning. So, open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 58 and verse 2. I'm going to read the last sentence in that verse. As most of the verses in Isaiah are, it is lengthy. We're not going to read the whole thing. We're going to read the last sentence. Isaiah chapter 58 and verse 2. Isaiah 58 and 2. God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah about a description of true religion. One of the things that the the people that really want God, one of the things that they do is in this verse, Isaiah 58 and 2, a description of true religion. They take delight in approaching God. They take delight in approaching God. They don't have to. They aren't forced to. They don't grudgingly approach the throne of God. They take delight in approaching God. Let's pray. God, I ask in the next few moments that you will speak through me. God, I give you this service. Whatever you want to do here, it's yours. I give it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My oldest son, Mark, works at Kaba up here in the Bethlehem Shopping Center. I don't know if you've ever been there. It's next to the Dunkin' Donuts. They serve... Mediterranean type food. You can get falafel there if you're in the mood for falafel in Bethlehem, Georgia. You can get it there and you can get gyros and salads and all kinds of stuff. So I went there occasionally before Mark got a job there, but now I go more often. I like to see him. It's not super busy. It's not like the Chick-fil-A. So he can come out and sometimes he'll sit at the table with me and talk to me for a couple of minutes. And it's a, a nice time to see my 19-year-old son, who I don't see as often as I did when he was younger. So I was at the uh, I was at the Caba about uh, two weeks weeks ago, and uh, I went right at noon, so it was busier than it normally is, and there was a lot of employees behind the counter, there were people at the tables, there was, you know, orders, and being, food being made, and people talking, and drinks being filled, and everything like that, and as I was sitting there eating my salad, I heard somebody cough, <coughs> and I knew it was Mark, I knew it was Mark, I knew it was Mark. I don't know how, other than I've heard him cough for the last 19 years of his life. From the first cough to that one, I've heard every single one. And for some reason, I just knew that was him. The father always, always can recognize the kids. The problem is the kids cannot always recognize the father. I wonder if we replaced it. And Mark was there, and I coughed if he would know that that was me. I don't know if he would or not. And I'll be honest, this is even worse. I'm not sure that if I was in a restaurant with my parents, if I could pick out my parents' cough. (laughs) Because it's different. Until you have kids, you can't really understand what that's like. Turn, if you will, to John chapter 10. John chapter 10 in the New Testament. Beginning with verse 2, Jesus is speaking, and he's speaking about himself. Jesus is describing himself as the good shepherd, and he says this, John chapter 10 and verse 2, "'But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger.'" But will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. The passage we read in Isaiah chapter 58 says, They delight in approaching God. As you approach God, three things begin to happen. The first is this: we recognize the Father. We know his voice. Look again at what it says in what Jesus says in John. He goes before them, the sheep follow him, and they know his voice. And they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. So many people say to me, how do I hear from God? How do I hear from God? How do I hear from God? They take delight in approaching him. You want to be able to hear the voice of God in your life. You have to be able to differentiate between the voice of God and the voice of strangers. The sheep follow the good shepherd, not the strangers, because they know his voice. If you don't know your father's voice, how can you tell the difference between him and a stranger? They delight in approaching God. If you will take delight in coming near to God, in approaching him, in being in relationship with him, that is discipleship. Discipleship is not about life groups. Discipleship is about being in a relationship with God the Father. You want to hear from God? You have to take a delight in approaching him. Take a delight in approaching him. Once you take delight in approaching him, then you will recognize the voice of the good shepherd, and you will follow the shepherd and not a stranger. Look again. They will by no means follow a stranger, but flee from him. For they do not know the voice of strangers in a crowded restaurant with dozens and dozens of people in the restaurant and several working behind the counter. I heard one person cough one time and I instantly knew it was my son. Do we love our heavenly father so much that we can tell when he's talking to us? That's what we struggle with. You want to hear from God you have to take delight in approaching him. Now the second thing is this. Turn, if you will, to Galatians chapter four. Galatians chapter four. Verses eight and nine. Galatians four, eight and nine. says this. But then indeed, when you did not know God you served those by which you serve those which by nature are not God's but now after you have known God or rather are known by God how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage look at this but now after you have known God How is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? As we draw near to God, we begin to recognize him. We are in relationship with him. We can discern his voice. We can separate his voice from the cacophony of voices that seem to be drowning out the voice of God, and we can't tell. Is it God? Is it a stranger? Is it God? Is it something else? Is it me? Did I, did, is, is God really speaking to me, or did I simply eat too much pizza right before I went to bed? Is that the voice of God, or is it my own subconscious? How am I supposed to hear? Where is God leading me? What is God saying to me? But if we take delight in approaching Him, we begin to hear His voice. But that's simply not enough. In drawing near to God, not only do we recognize the Father, but we begin to know the Father. We begin to know the Father. Look again at what it says. But now, after you have known God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements? We know the Father, and yet we return to the stuff that we used to do. We know the Father, but we return to these weak and beggarly elements, the stuff that used to hold us in bondage, that is not as powerful or as strong as God the Father. For uh, I'm not going to share that story we know the father and we return to the weak and beggarly elements that so easily ensnare us we know the father And we return to the elements that so easily ensnare us. Why? Because the sin and the addiction that so easily ensnares us does not convict us at all. It's easy to return to that because there's no conviction there. The more we get to know God the more God begins to poke and prod at our life. You shouldn't be doing this. You shouldn't be going there. You shouldn't be thinking about this. You shouldn't be acting that way. Knowing God is a very, very difficult and complicated scenario because God is not absentee. God is not complacent. He's constantly encouraging us to do better, to be different, to grow, to mature, to to be built up in our faith. Why haven't you dealt with this thing? Why haven't you dealt with that? Why haven't you, why aren't you doing this? Why are you still struggling? You understand when he pokes and he prods. Why do we return to the weak and beggarly elements? Because sin doesn't care what you do. Because sin doesn't convict you. Sin is fine with that. So we return to those things because they're comfortable and because they don't make us feel bad. They take delight in approaching God. And as we approach him, we recognize the Father, and then we begin to know the Father. You want victory in your life, you have to know the Father and be like him. Otherwise, we return to the weak and beggarly elements that so easily beset us. The final thing is this, James chapter 4 and verse 8. I'm just going to read the beginning of this. James chapter 4 and verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. One of my, uh, some of my favorite books and really good movies are the books and movies by uh, J.R.R. Tolkien. The Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, those kind of movies. And there's a ton of computer-generated effects uh, there's, there's, you know, body doubles and stand-ins and stuntmen and all these other things. But you want to know one of the ways that they filmed those movies to make the people that were playing hobbits appear much smaller, and the people that were playing humans appear much larger. They didn't use any special effects in it. They used something called forced perspective. It's the simplest thing in the world. It's one of the oldest tricks in movie making history. What you do is you have two people that sit across from each other at a table but they're not sitting in the same place. I want to appear larger to the camera, so I sit here and look there. The person that appears smaller to the camera sits back here and looks this way, but we pretend that we're facing each other and we have a conversation. The person closer to the camera from up there, the person farther from the camera from back here, and we look at each other as if we are sitting in the same place. You know what that does? Because a camera is 2D, it has a forced perspective. So the person closer appears much larger than the person further from the camera. It's just a trick of movie making. There's no computer generated effects. There's no stunt doubles. You simply sit at a table and one person simply sits closer than the other. It's called forced perspective. I'll give you another great example. Your thumb is bigger than that cluster of speakers. Here's what I want you to do. I'm gonna come out here so we can all do this together. All right? We're gonna hold our thumb up like this in front of our face. Now you're gonna close one of your eyes, doesn't matter which one, your right or your left, close one of your eyes, and then you're gonna take your thumb and slowly move it back in front of your eye that is still open. Slowly move it back, slowly move it back, right there for me, right there, my thumb is bigger than that cluster of speakers an amazing thing, isn't it? <laughs> Who would have thought that this little thumb would be bigger than those three speakers? Must be, they must be a lot smaller up there. They look bigger from down here. Is my thumb bigger than those cluster of speakers? No. It is forced perspective. I pushed my thumb up against my eye and it appeared to be bigger than that. Now listen to me. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. You are going to absolutely 100% in your life draw near to something. And what happens is that Satan uses forced perspective against you. He takes this sin, this addiction, this issue, this depression, this pain, this agony, this suffering, this habit, this temptation, whatever it is, your past, your present, your future, whatever the thing that has happened to you, whatever it is that you've done, whatever it is you've experienced, whatever mistakes you've made, whatever people you've hurt, what he does is he takes that and he presses it so close against your eye that it blocks everything else out. And you can't believe for a second that there's anything in the universe bigger than that thing. But it's not true. All Satan has done is push that sin, that issue, that habit so close to your eye that you can't possibly believe that God is bigger than that. But he is. He is bigger. It's simply an issue of forced perspective. Draw near to God and what? He might He probably will. He might draw near to you. If you're good enough, he'll draw near to you. No, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And the deal about God is, the closer you get to him, the more he blocks out everything else. If you're so close to God that you're hugging him and he fills your vision, then there's nowhere for the devil to insert something that appears bigger than God. What happens is, This thing comes closer and closer and closer and all you can see is the pain and your mistake and your stupidity and your past and your addiction and your habit and that thing you can't get over. And this seems so much bigger. And God says, draw near to me. And you say, how can I draw near to you, God? I can't even see you. Plus, look how big this thing is. It blocks out everything else. I can't even see anything else. And God says, draw near to me. And if we allow him to fill our vision, then nothing else can block him out. Draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. Let me close with this story. As I said, this is probably the shortest, simplest message I'm ever gonna preach here. I was with my dad one time at a conference, Being a preacher and having a preacher for a dad has helped me enormously because you get to hear all the good stories. So I was at a conference with my dad and this missionary that was there was telling my dad an interesting story. He said he was a missionary to India and he had gone to India for a long, long time and he was uh, leaving on a trip and he was invited by a local Christian in Nepal. Now for those of you who don't know know these countries, there's not a lot of Christians in Nepal. That is sort of the headquarters, the capital of of Buddhism and some other Far Eastern religions. So there's not a lot of Christians in Nepal, but this was a local Christian who was from Nepal. He was a local, a native. He had been saved and he had started a little church and he invited this missionary from India to come up and visit him in Nepal. And this guy said, great, I'm gonna come. And he told the guy, he said, one of, the, one of my greatest things, one of my greatest bucket list is I want to see Mount Everest. He said, I don't want to climb it. I don't want to climb Mount Everest. He said, I just want to see Mount Everest. And the guy from Nepal said, no problem. I can take you to a viewing platform. We can get there. You don't have to climb. Well, you can see Mount Everest. He said, great. As he flew into Nepal, the whole country was covered in a fog bank. As he got off the plane, he met the pastor and they talked about the work that was ahead the next day or two, and then the final day, their free day, he was gonna go to this place and see Mount Everest. And he said, I hope the fog will clear. He said, I'm worried I won't be able to see the mountain. Missionary said, the little guy from Nepal laughed and he said, it's bigger than you think. So they went and they did their mission work They were in this church. They preached all this kind of stuff. He had one day left, and he said not only had the fog not gone away, the fog had gotten thicker and thicker and thicker. So finally, the the last day he was there, he said to the little pastor there from Nepal, he said, well, I'm ready to go, but should we even go? What's the point of even going? I can't even see more than 10 feet. He said, what's the point of going and trying to see Mount Everest? Pastor patted him on the hand, and he said, it's bigger than you think. He said they drove up into the foothills of the Himalayas. They got out of the truck, and he said the fog was thicker in the mountains than it was on the ground. He said that they actually had to hold hands to walk up the path to this viewing area. He said, let's just go back. This is stupid. There's no reason to keep going with this. What's the point of this? We can't, I can't even see my hand in front of my face. The little guy looked back at him and said, it's bigger than you think. He said they got to the viewing platform. He said, Mount Everest is just right out there. And the missionary said he looked, and he looked, and he said he he thought the fog kind of parted for a moment, and he thought he saw off in the distance, the horizon. One peak was a little bit bigger than the other one. And he said, he turned, he said, I think I see it. I think I see it right out there. That Right out there, one looks bigger than the other one. And he said the pastor from Nepal came behind him, put his hands on his head, and he said, not out there, up there. And he put his eyes up, and there it was. He said, not out there, up there. He's bigger than you think. God's bigger than you think. They take delight in approaching God. and When they do, they recognize the Father. They know the Father. But the most important thing is, they gain perspective of the Father. A lot of people like to tease preachers, and I'm okay with it, because for a lot of preachers, it's true. Not me, but a lot of preachers, it's true. A lot of people always tease preachers and say, well, you only work one day a week. I know, that's all right. Some guys, some guys, I work a lot. <laughs> this isn't work. This is what I love to do. I do all the other stuff to get to do this. But for some guys, I get it, they work one day a week. Here's the deal with being a pastor, though. Some of those weeks are extremely emotionally draining. There are people in this church that I love and care about that are going through a terrible time. There are people in this church that I love and care about that have been sick. Steve just got out of the hospital. There's all kinds of stuff happening. Physical pain, emotional pain, mental pain. And I'm not complaining please don't think you can't call me or something because you think I'm complaining. I'm not complaining. What I'm saying is I I care deeply for each and every one of you. So I'm going to ask the musicians and the singers to come back to the stage right now if they will. And they're going to sing, and I just want to open up this altar for you to pray about anything you want to pray about. I just I just This is what I said when I talked about it being different. What happens is you worry if you pray for a long time that the visitors are like, "Oh, is this what happens here?" This is If you're not in touch with that, you've never passed through a church before is you constantly have that battle between what God wants to do and also not keeping you guys here till two o'clock in the afternoon. That is a struggle. It's a true thing. Trying to make this service as accessible to as many people as you can, but also trying to allow God to move in whatever way he wants to, in whatever way he wants to do. That is a struggle in ministry. The accessibility of the service measured against what God is trying to do, and I have just decided I'm picking God over accessibility every single time.